Welcome to Citizen Detective UK. Don't forget you can grab your free guide at citizendetective.uk. That's all one word, citizendetective.uk. Welcome to this week's episode. We are focusing on another Hull murder, the last for a while, the murder of Kirsty Carver in 1998, and the book by Carol Ann Lee, one of your own, about Myra Hindley's life and works. We start this week with a factoid about Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. He killed men as well as women, and killed far more than the official count. He still languishes in prison, unwilling to talk. So, our case this week is another good news story. I have to use the word advisedly. In true crime, there are no good news stories, but the least we can do, in fact, perhaps the best we can do, is catch the killer and put them in prison, which did happen in the Kirsty Carver case. The reason for choosing Kirsty Carver is that this was another whole murder that crept little into my own life. Kirsty worked as a civilian in Queen's Gardens in Hull with Humberside Police. She went missing late one night after leaving a friend's house where there was a party going on. She went to get petrol at the petrol station over in Willoughby, not in the square but down in the shopping park, which was quite new back then in the early 90s, mid-90s, and that's a mile or two from where we were living at the time. A few days, more likely weeks later, a search party wanted to look in our back garden just to rule us out. They were knocking on every door in our road, which was over two miles long, so there's a lot of houses, and what they didn't know was that dad had been digging out in the back garden. There was a mound of earth, six feet long and two feet wide, waiting on the lawn. Could it be? Of course not. Kirsty was grabbed and murdered by the man who worked in the petrol station that night. Kind of obvious, especially in the early days of CCTV, or at least good CCTV. But there wasn't a body. Her car was found nearby, but it took over a month to find the body right out on the East Yorkshire coast out at Spurn Point. After they found the body, there was more evidence, of course. The killer was found and sent to prison where he remains. And I'll put on the social feeds a whole Daily Mail article which shows that he has recently been refused parole but may well be moved to an open prison so the category rating is reducing. He's no longer seen as a high-risk prisoner but he is seen as somebody who should not be released just yet. The ghost of Christopher Laverack still haunted Humberside Police in the 1990s because they still hadn't found his killer and I can only imagine the relief when the Kirsty Carver case was wrapped up efficiently. Once they found the body things happened pretty quickly and the court case happened in early 1999. I still remember the case. Obviously, I wish it hadn't happened, but the solved cases, uh, the ones that go according to plan, always seem to be the ones which get forgotten. So that's my reason for choosing the Kirsty Carver case as one of our early, not even a cold case, it's a solved case. But it's Christopher Laverack who we looked at last time, who I still remember the best from my own childhood. I was younger then, and the fact that there was no, sus well, there was a suspect, there was nobody tried for the crime and sent to prison, ever. And so to this week's book review, a book called One of Your Own by Carol Ann Lee about the life of Myra Hindley. I was surprised in many ways to see another book about Myra Hindley. After all the others and the TV documentaries, dramas, um, Maxine Peake played Myra once, about the British Moors murders of the early 1960s. These were notable because the murders were carried out by a male-female couple, um, and as you probably know, serial killers nearly always act alone, and the only other male-female couple I can think of is Fred and Rosemary West. These attacks, the Moors murders, were random attacks on children, fairly random. The bodies were buried on the bleak moorland above Lancashire, on its boundary with West Yorkshire, and also because of the mugshot, the police photograph, horridly taken, but never to be forgotten, black and white shot 
of a bleached blonde woman looking every inch the fashionable female ready to go to the disco or the pub. But there was something blank about the expression. Tiredness, absolutely, but something else that really caught the imagination when it was published on the front pages of the papers, even more than the photograph taken of Ian Brady. And there are some reasons why I'm affected by these murders, even though they happened a decade before I was born. One of those reasons is that their first victim, Pauline Reed, was not found until 1987, when I was at an impressionable age. Another reason is that we visited similar moors, the North York moors, several times a year for family walks and holidays. And certainly driving across the M62 near Saddleworth is a very creepy experience to this day. And also, of course, because of that photograph of Myra Hindley. Hindley was never released from prison, although she had many high-profile cheerleaders, including Lord Longford. Indeed, her crimes were carried out when Britain still had the death penalty. It was temporarily abolished a few weeks before the trial started, but it was never reinstated, and by rights, with a small twist in the river of life, Myra Hindley would have been the last woman to be hanged in Britain, and nobody would know the name Ruth Ellis. And so, for younger listeners, that's an introduction to the topic of the Moore's murders. I think most of you perhaps knew a lot of that already. And so we have another book. It's not new, it's been out for a few years, but I think this is the best. It's described partly as a biography of Myra Hindley, and you might think, well, why on earth does Britain's most notorious female serial killer deserve a biography? But of course, a biography of somebody like this is not like a biography of Michael Parkinson or somebody like that. It's, it's, um, it's about the crimes. It's about what led to the crimes and what followed the crimes for the decades that she spent in prison. This book has more empathy than the books I've read, which were all written by men. There was a famous female journalist who wrote one of the early accounts, perhaps written too soon after the fact, and includes a lot of inaccuracies. So Carol Ann Lee set out to write a book with empathy, with the distance of time, but also trying to correct some of the facts. The case partly because the police were so closed off in those days and perhaps remain so here compared to in the US, because the investigations didn't go well, only two bodies were found and, and one of them was in the house that Myra Hindley lived in, so it wasn't difficult to find that one. They only found two bodies quickly, a third was then found and two more remained lost and one remains lost to this day. The investigation wasn't exactly great. There was a very high interest from the public. It was a massive shock to the Longsight and southeast Manchester areas, and there was a lot of anger towards the murderers and also towards the police. So there's a lot of high emotion all around. Facts got lost, misrepresented. People listened to the wrong witnesses or perhaps people who weren't even witnesses and what they'd heard third-hand from somebody's uncle in the pub did happen a lot. And those early accounts are somewhat coloured by that. So it's written after Myra's death. It's written a long time after the murders, and that gives you a certain distance at least. But I think in some ways it makes the thing more frightening because it shows that Myra was in the end a person, she was a human. Flawed, nobody would dispute that, but there were elements to her character which were pretty normal. So then the question of course that everybody asks is, well it was just Ian Brady that corrupted her and Myra Hindley was another victim. I don't agree with that. Based on everything I've read, and I have read widely on this in the last year or so, and in previous years I've followed this for a long time, it is not the case that Myra Hindley was some kind of wilting flower who was corrupted by the evil Ian Brady. That does not ring true at all. She had a mean streak. She had a rough and tough upbringing, 
and she could defend herself physically. David Smith, who you'll hear about soon, was frightened of her, physically frightened of her. She could easily attack men and did, including her own father. But she had a wonderful sister, Maureen. As far as we can tell, never hurt anybody. She died tragically young and Maureen with the same genes, with the same background, well, not quite the same background, but a very, very, very similar background, never killed anybody. So Myra needn't have become a killer, perhaps another reason why people blame Brady. But I started to see another argument, and that, that perhaps Myra was bad, and it's certainly a fact that even Ian Brady wouldn't have been able to snatch random children from the streets of Longsight and Ardwick in Manchester, because they would never have walked away with him, a man they didn't know, a stranger and not exactly somebody who put you at ease. Many, many accounts I've read mention that Ian Brady was creepy. Whereas Myra was not creepy, she could be extremely charming, and therefore, perhaps, without her, there would have been no Moore's murders at all. So she is absolutely not blameless. This book does not suggest that, but it does try and show her as a rounded human where that is appropriate. And I'm sure that might be controversial to some people. Not to me. I think it makes it more interesting, more frightening. And then later on in the 1990s, uh, just a few years after Pauline Reed was found up on the moors, I found another reason to be spooked again by Hindley and Brady. I went to Manchester as a student and we used to drink in the Whitworth pub, which although I've never seen this mentioned in accounts, certainly the word at the time was that Hindley and Brady had met in the Whitworth pub and had drinks there fairly regularly. It, it was a long walk, but not that far of a walk from where Brady lived in Longsight. And then in my final year in Manchester, I got a flat in Longsight opposite the market, which was very close to where Ian Brady's house would have been if the council hadn't redeveloped the area in the 1960s. And this was coincidental. They removed Ian Brady's house, the houses of many victims, plus the Hindley's house and Pauline Reed's house. The town planners had already marked the area for wholesale destruction long before the killing began. Keith Bennett's house still stands, his street overlooked by the cranes and wrecking balls, and Keith Bennett himself is the only victim never to have been found and perhaps never likely to be found. It feels to me after reading this book, alongside the somewhat controversial account by Peter Topping, the policeman who reopened the case in the 1980s and found Pauline Reed's remains, that Brady did remember where Keith was buried and consciously took the secret to his grave. But did Myra remember where they buried Keith, and I'm not sure about that. She certainly took more of a role in the murders as time went on, and Keith was the third victim out of five. Topping felt that her confession was very guarded and very rehearsed, and leaving out details which perhaps would have showed that Myra had more of an active role in the mayhem than she admitted or would ever admit. Both of them separately, Myra and Ian, were allowed out of prison for a day to lead Peter Topping around the moors. And they both took him to an area called Shiny Brook, just over the border in West Yorkshire. It's a long way from the other three bodies. And of course, this leads people to think, well, OK, they were leading the police astray deliberately. Shiny Brook wasn't right. The other three bodies were found fairly close together, with the two girls on the north side of the road and John Kilbride on the south side. So would Keith be near John, perhaps? Would it be girls in one area and boys in another. That seems a bit neat. It is known that Brady chose the locations very specifically because he apparently buried a spade on at least one occasion, possibly more, ahead of time. So he went up to the moor by himself or with Myra, hid a spade in the location that he had picked, and then later on they would come back with a child alive, pretending to be looking for a glove, and then he would kill them and bury them 
near the spade. Myra always maintained that Ian did the killing out on the moors, and only Ian knew precisely where the bodies were. They also took a lot of photographs, and some of the photographs were of the grave sites, although the, there was no obvious evidence at the time the photo was taken. When the police went back and managed to match up the locations using landmarks, they found John Kilbride. So then they think, well, okay, maybe other photos will lead us to Keith and Pauline. Ian Brady and Myra Hindley took the police to Shiny Brook. Myra drew diagrams and always mentioned Shiny Brook. But others, including the people who farm the land, think it was perhaps more towards the John Kilbride location. Well, after so many decades, there are now, as well as John, Keith, Leslie Ann and Pauline, the remains of sheep and other creatures up there, the moorland vegetation continues to grow and there are many streams and brooks running through the moorland which can hasten the deterioration of human remains. But on the other hand, the rich peat which Hindley and Brady and along with many other locals took away from the moor to use in their gardens, uh, the peat preserves. It preserved Pauline Reed for 20 years but allowed John Kilbride no such luck. The body that was discovered first, Leslie Ann Downey, is the little girl they recorded on tape in a horrific torture session. Perhaps that tape is one more reason we remember these two, perhaps before we remember any other British serial killers, apart from Jack the Ripper. Everyone forgets the final victim, the one who brought the House of Cards down. Edward Evans was much older than the others, not really a child, but not quite a man either. He fought back, much stronger and bigger than the other boys. The murder went horribly wrong, and it was witnessed by the boyfriend of Myra's sister, David Smith, Myra's gran, who was upstairs in bed and tired, heard a commotion and asked what was going on but did not investigate further. So this horrific bloodbath was a family affair and Smith brought notoriety and a lifetime of trouble on himself when he reported events to the police the next day. David Smith, showing immense courage, brought the killing to an end and it's appalling to contemplate just how many more victims there might have been without David Smith. David Smith is another of the victims in, in a way that got forgotten. And later on, partly as a result of this book, Carol Ann Lee wrote another excellent account of David's life before, during and after the murders. And really, that book could have been written about any of the children in Longsight at that time, and perhaps even in the north of England, and perhaps the whole of the UK. I think every single person was affected by this but perhaps none more so than David Smith, who witnessed the murder of Edward Evans and was a friend of Ian Brady and dated and later married Myra's sister Maureen. This case still has one more secret to give us before we allow it to be forgotten. But in reading this account and a brief look at Facebook, reminds me that Keith's brother Alan still wants answers. Pauline, John, Keith, Leslie Ann and Edward had other friends, friends who were not killed, who continue with their lives today. All of them want an answer. All of them had to be chaperoned to school and to friends' houses by adults. They had to lock their doors more often and they all lived their childhoods in the shadow of the moors and these murders for the last 50 years and counting. The book I'm talking about, which is excellent, is One of Your Own by Carol Ann Lee. Carol Ann Lee's also written a book about the White House farm murders, which has been made into a drama series which was an ITV in the UK but is now available on HBO. So we'll finish with a factoid, not a happy factoid I'm afraid, although I could do with it. Peter Sutcliffe was arrested with a hammer 
while hiding in bushes one night. He had previously been cautioned only a few weeks earlier for assaulting a woman by hitting her on the back of the head with a rock held in a sock. The events were not connected together by the police and the hammer incident was recorded as a crime of being prepared for burglary rather than some kind of assault. Thereby, the police unwittingly enabled one of Britain's most prolific crime sprees. Peter Sutcliffe very commonly killed with a hammer to the back of the head. Thank you for listening to Citizen Detective UK this week. We'll be back next time, and in the next episode we will start to look at some of the techniques you might be able to use with an internet connection or a phone and some time. You can grab our free guide on that topic at citizendetective.uk. See you next time. Thank you.